Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you, Callie. Let me ask a question as we start this morning. Uh, just think about this. You don't need to respond. This is a, a not rhetorical. I guess it is something for you to, to actually think of answers, but we don't need to like, you know, have sharing time. So um, have you ever been invited to try something or do something that would supposedly change your life? Now, maybe the exact words change your life weren't used, but the implication was there. Maybe... It's some health routine, uh, maybe some supplement or vitamin, um, some powder to add to your smoothie, um, maybe just some food, some, something that would, would change your life. Um, so this week, as I literally, I, I can't make this up. I mean, I could make it up, but I'm not. This is, this is true. Uh, as I was writing the introduction and thinking about this very thing, uh, I took a break and left my office. And so I have an office on Fifth Street. It's one little uh, office that's part of a suite. And so there's several coworkers there that we interact with. So as I left my office, uh, my, one of my coworkers there in the suite said, Paul, have you had lunch? And I said, no, actually I haven't. And he said, well, don't go get anything. Um, I have a baguette sandwich from Go Get Bakery. It'll change your life. And I thought, this is weird. Is there, are there cameras in my office that I don't know about? And so he goes down to his, his office, and he comes back with this paper bag and this baguette sandwich, uh, and he, he says, oh, and he just goes on and on and on, implying that this is going to change my life. Now, I've had some things from Go-Get. I don't remember if I had ever had a sandwich. Um, so I went back in, and I ate half of it, and it was good. I'm not going to complain. I mean, it's a nice, fresh baguette piece of bread that's buttered. I mean, that's good right there. And then meat and cheese and meat and cheese layered. And, but I wouldn't think it changed my, my life, but it, it, was, it was good. Now, okay, I thought that was the end to this little illustration. But then a couple hours later, as I'm leaving, I go outside and I, I saw him and I thanked him for the sandwich. And he said to me, he, he literally said this as I left. He said, that sandwich has ruined all subsequent sandwiches. I mean, he is just convinced that they, are, they will change anyone's life. And uh, um, yesterday or the other day, we were downtown, and um, I saw him, and I pointed him out to my wife. 
Christian, that's the guy I'm going to talk about uh, in my, in my uh, message. So um, I'm just curious. Anybody have a go-get sandwich? Did it change your life? Okay, you know, well, anyhow. So th- this guy was convinced that it would. You get my point, though. We, we've had those experiences. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was a book someone handed you or told you about. Oh, that, that book, it'll, you know, it'll change. Or a podcast or, or something like that. We, we encounter claims like that often. But here's what's ironic. Um, very rarely, if ever, do, do those claims live up to the promise. Do they really ever change our lives? Maybe sometimes, you know, but, but that, that assertion, more often than not, yeah, it's kind of like the, the go-get sandwich. Yeah, it was good. It was free, um, you know, but I'm not going back every day for one kind of a thing. See, these claims, they, they fail to deliver. And, and so there isn't, there isn't a life change. What's, what's interesting is that our God is a God who throughout the Bible... He makes promises to us. He makes promises to his people. In fact, um, we just finished last week a, a three-month or so journey through the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Um, we call them the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve there in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, and those are filled with God promising things. Now, God delivers on what he promises. If he's promising you know, this nation that hey, I'm going to judge you for how you treated my people. He, he did it. He does it more often is the case. Or to God's people, if they don't return to him and live in light of what he's called them to, uh, they won't experience the blessed life and, and so on and so on. The, the minor prophets especially are filled with God promising things, but God, he, he delivers on, on what he promises. He has delivered on what he, he promises. But there's also promises of God that, that not only came to God's people and then had a fulfillment then, but, but there's promises God has made that are still yet to, to be fulfilled. And then there are promises that were made and were fulfilled, and they have had an implication on us. We, we may not care so much about, you know, the Idumeans and what God was going to do to them, but, but if, if God has made a promise and it affects us, we, we ought to care, and we ought to not fall into just like, oh yeah, like every other promise, going to change my life. Really, God, is, is that really going to change my life? I, I want over the next uh, two Sundays together, today and next week, as we talk about the arrival, that is, that's hard to read the fine print there under arrival. Hopefully everyone can make out the big word. Uh, the, the fine print there says the prophesied advent of Jesus. So the first coming, the first advent, his arrival. And it was prophesied. It was, it was said that it would happen. Um, Jesus's first advent, his arrival. We're going to look at um, the gospel of Matthew together. And the reason I picked the gospel of Matthew, since we've been in the minor prophets, we've been looking at these books. Uh, Matthew does something that's really, really uh, pretty cool, in fact. Um, it has to do with that word on the screen. Can anybody say that word? Except not my mother-in-law. She knows it. But the rest of you probably, I, I'm trying to trip you up. Um, so that, you shouldn't know that. Uh, that is Greek for this word, which hopefully you all can say that. Can you say that word? Fulfill. So Matthew does something um, that's pretty, pretty cool as he, in the first three chapters or so, talks about the arrival of Jesus, the prophesy uh, arrival. He, 
has this formula, we could call it. Um, it's, it's something that one of my professors in seminary referred to as a, a fulfillment formula. And in fact, you heard Callie a few moments ago as she read Matthew 1, 18 to 25. She got to the phrase, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And so several times in Matthew 1, 2, and 3, uh, those words come up. You can this week maybe read through all three chapters and, and note in your Bibles where that little little formula comes up. But, but here's what it means. Uh, this fulfillment f- formula as found in Matthew has to do with an event or a teaching of Jesus. So it's not only a teaching. It could be an event of Jesus, but it could also be teaching of Jesus that fulfills an Old Testament passage. My, my professor, he noted that when Matthew uses this formula, um, there are, are three kind of general uh, ways it could, it could be a fulfillment. Number one, a direct prediction fulfillment. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. Uh, there's this, this prophecy that comes in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, and, and Matthew he uses that formula, and it is a direct prediction fulfillment, okay? Uh, there's also the intended full meaning of the Old Testament scripture fulfillment. So uh, this is like in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Uh, you've heard it said in the law, but I say to you, right? So Jesus gives the intended full meaning of what God intended in the Old Testament. Or three, there is a divinely orchestrated analogical or typological correspondence. Did you get those two big, two cent words? Analogical, typological correspondence, uh, like to Israel's history. So we'll, we'll see this actually next week, um, where again, there's kind of these things put side by side. But what you need to keep in mind is what you see there on the screen. Something concerning the person of Jesus that is a fulfillment of something God said in the Old Testament. And again, scholars note that Matthew is strategic in designing his account of the birth of Jesus around uh, at least five of these Old Testament prophecies to show that Jesus fulfills God's promises in in the arrival, the prophesied advent of Jesus. So we're going to look at just two, one today and Lord willing, next week together on Christmas Sunday and see Matthew's intent, the intent of God. And really it's this, it's that we might understand, there's, there's a mental understanding, but, but also an experience. That we might understand and experience how God, keeping his promises some 2,000 years ago, then how it fulfills even in us today deep longings. That's, that's what this is all about. Looking at the first advent, We want to understand and experience how God, keeping his promises then, fulfills uh, the longings of our lives now. If you haven't already opened to Matthew chapter 1, please uh, turn or swipe there. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. But before we look at the text that you heard read, uh, I want to jump kind of to the middle or, or end of of that section. And I put these uh, verses on the screen. So you can look in your Bible, Matthew 1, 22 to 23, or, or glance at the screen. Here it is, Matthew's first fulfillment formula passage. 
and that shapes this account, this narrative. So Matthew says, all this took place, and then we'll get in a minute to all what, but everything he's just been talking about took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And it happens to be the prophet Isaiah. And then Matthew quotes Isaiah in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew puts in parentheses something to help us non-Jewish Hebrew-speaking folks understand. Emmanuel means God with us. So that parentheses is, is pretty incredible. And really, it's, it's everything about this, this first passage today, this first fulfillment passage. Matthew is inviting everyone into this reality. God with us. God with us. Not, not God somewhere out there watching us. Not, not God somewhere, you know, doing things to us or for us. But God with us. God with us. In this quote, in this fulfillment, he, he is saying, Matthew is sermonizing that in Jesus, God comes to be with us. So just right there, that's it. If you, if you end up needing to leave here early for some reason this morning, right, as you go into this final week, maybe you still have shopping to do, maybe there's meals to prepare and, and think about, maybe there's cards to write, maybe there's driving to be done to visit folks. And as some of you want to just chuck all that out the window and you're over it, in Jesus Next Sunday, when you wake up, December 25th, and, and we, that's the date. We don't know, of course, if that's when Jesus was born. Probably not, actually. But in history now, that date has been the day we, we think about and, and honor his coming, his birthday. And in Jesus, God comes to be with us. This truth is mind-boggling, and it can change your life. That, that is a promise, that, that if we will understand and experience, it will change our life. Some of us, we've had it change our life, uh, but maybe we need to have it once again change our life. And, and if you haven't had that promise change your life, uh, I, I pray this morning, this might be the beginning of, of it doing this radical thing in, in you. In Jesus, God comes to be with us. So now let's get into Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And Matthew, he's going to give two signs uh, in, in this, this section, and we're going to look at them one at a time. And so the first sign has to do with the miraculous nature of the birth of Jesus. And, and so it's the virgin birth or, or the virginal conception. Um, and so Matthew 1, let me read verses 18 to 20, and then I'm going to skip to 23a. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, let the reader understand, before they came together, okay, 
You understand? She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just or righteous man, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then again, verse 23, the first part, the quote from Isaiah seven fourteen: Behold, the virgin shall conceive. So here, Matthew 23a, he's quoting this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, like 700 BC, 700 years before the time of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, okay? 700 years in the past, Isaiah, he brought many prophecies to God's people, uh, Isaiah is an amazing, amazing book. It's a major prophet <laughs> for many reasons. It's long and big, and there's a lot to it uh, compared to the minor prophets, uh, major in its size. Um, Isaiah brought many uh, judgments from God against his people uh, about them being sent into exile for their sin, how God would bring them out of exile and, and restore his people. The writings of Isaiah also include so many wonderful uh, prophecies and allusions um, regarding the coming Messiah. Of course, Isaiah chapter 53 is probably the most famous, this account uh, of, uh, of, of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the suffering servant, it, it often is called. How He was bruised for our transgressions and the sin of us was put on him and, and so forth and those things, Isaiah 53. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus, this baby that is born, is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah 7. He quotes here and says, this is, this is speaking about Jesus. When Isaiah wrote that, he was speaking about Jesus. Now, just briefly, um, we don't have time to dive into it. There's very likely a dual meaning to what uh, Isaiah had uh, to say. Um, and we'll put it up here in a second and look at this, this prophecy, but there probably was an immediate um, fulfillment to those words that Isaiah had for God's people then. But, but Matthew, under the inspiration, meaning he's writing what God wanted him to write, he says, ah, those words, their final full fulfillment are, are found in Jesus. And, and Matthew, um, he, he again is, is going to great lengths and everything he's, he says in this account to show that this is uh, the arrival of that prophecy, um, Emmanuel. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Now, so notice, look back with me uh, in verses 18 to 20. We'll jump to Isaiah in a moment, but just look at how Matthew goes to these lengths to, to, to help us with this. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus took place. It, it happened in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, before you think, oh, that's like 
King James sounding English or, or you know, ESV. Why, why can't you just use the word engaged? And, and some translations do use the word engaged. Uh, we need to note that uh, in the time of Jesus, to be betrothed was like uh, being engaged in our day, but it was also not at all like being engaged. Um, if you were betrothed at that time, um, it meant that you were legally considered to be married. Uh, and this is why, in fact, if you notice how Matthew puts this, um, jump, jump, um, so verse 19, right? It says, if uh, they're, they're betrothed, that's there in verse 18, and then look right at verse 19, and her husband. So they're betrothed, but Matthew is calling Joseph Mary's husband. Again, there, there was a legal pledge to be, be married. And again, this is where it's so much different than our engagement. Uh, our engagements don't have that legal uh, connection. But, but notice, again, Matthew goes to, to great lengths to say um, that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, and you heard me tongue-in-cheek say, let the reader understand what that means, um, before they had a week-long wedding celebration, very likely, as Jewish couples would, and then before they consummated their, their legal marriage, before they came together, right? This is, this is conveying to us, they, they had not been intimate. They, they were not intimate before they came together. Um, we, we continue, and it says that she was found to be with child. She's pregnant, but it was from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, her husband, there's again that understanding of betrothal, Joseph, and, and the ESV says being a just man. That, that word just uh, could also be translated as, as righteous. Now, this didn't mean that he was sinless or perfect, okay? Uh, this even didn't mean that he was positionally justified in Christ, like we spoke of a few minutes ago, related to our prayers as Christians. This meant that as a Jewish man, Joseph was a just, a righteous, committed, God-fearing young man. I mean, he, he cared about God, he cared about the law, he cared about living righteously, and that meant, even though he's betrothed, Everything is going to be done the way God intended. And sex is intended uh, to be enjoyed, but in marriage. And that comes after this, however long betrothal period is. And so Joseph learns Mary's pregnant and being a just, righteous man. Well, what does it say? He, it says that he didn't want her to be shamed. He did love her. And he didn't want this public disgrace that would happen. So, still being righteous and just, he resolved to divorce her. That's the legal right thing to do. Because if you're pregnant, that means you've been with someone else. And so it's the right thing to just divorce her, but he'll do it quietly so there's no public shame to her. Verse 20. But as he considered, just imagine, all the considering that he's going through. Behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. And the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, implying, I know you're afraid, Joseph. Don't be afraid to do it. Don't, don't divorce her quietly, even 
though that's kind of you. No, don't be afraid to take her, to keep her betrothed to you and to, to keep her as your wife. For that which is conceived in her, she is pregnant, there was a conception, is from the Holy Spirit. If you jump down to verse 24 and 25, again, I'm wanting to have you just see the lengths Matthew is going to communicate that, that she was a virgin. In verse 24, the angel then, or, you know, Joseph gets this vision of the fulfillment, Isaiah, and then, and then verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, from that dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He, he took his wife, implying he kept the betrothal, and they saw that time period through. Matthew's summarizing uh, now the, the period, the nine months or so. But look what it says in verse 25. But Matt, Joseph knew her not. This, again, biblical imagery to speak of uh, a husband and wife knowing each other intimately, knowing each other sexually. Joseph did not know her in that way until she had given birth to a son. So they stay betrothed. Joseph sees this whole thing through. And do we have gazillion questions? Of course we do. And what about the family members and all those things you add to the list? We want to ask God one day. But Matthew says he, he, he was sexually, they, they didn't come together until she had given birth to this son. Again, Matthew, we're, we're trying to see, is going to lengths to understand um, that, that Mary was indeed um, a virgin. Now, let's talk about Isaiah for a minute. So if you look up at the screen, here's the, the verse from Isaiah that uh, Matthew quotes. So in the original prophecy, it was given to King Ahaz of Judah after God had challenged him to ask for a sign to confirm God's deliverance of Judah from, from a threat of kings. Well, Ahaz, he protests, but Isaiah rebukes Ahaz and then gives this prophecy. Uh, of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. And, and as I said, um, there's very likely an immediate fulfillment of that. Uh, and we can have a coffee together if you want to unpack that sometime. But here it is, and you see it on the screen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin. And then I put on the screen for you to see in parentheses, uh, that, that word in Hebrew, because this is now Isaiah, Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, is the Hebrew word Alma. And, and literally, that word means maiden, okay? Which can be a virgin, but, but it means maiden. And she shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, again, in the immediate context, God does provide a son as a sign of Judah's deliverance. But Isaiah is going to go on and continue to, to prophesy. Uh, and, and some of you know uh, the glory of Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. I, I actually, this morning, after thinking about this all week, had to put on Handel's Messiah as I was looking over my notes and praying this morning. Handel uh, wrote this amazing uh, opera from this, these texts, um, in, in part. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called 
wonderful, counselor, mighty God. Don't you just want to stand? Yeah. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah makes his prophecy in chapter 7, and as he continues, there's this promise of this one whose name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That, that, that doesn't apply to just any old boy. So God's people, they began to look for not just that immediate fulfillment, but a second son, a Messiah, an anointed one who would reign from David's throne, who would establish God's kingdom forever. Now, again, back to uh, the slide. You, you can see there um, in the original Hebrew, um, the word is Alma. And I'm going to have us put on our, our you know, school hats for a second because let me just kind of jump to the end of this point. Many people um, want to say, well, you know, um, the word that was used in Isaiah Alma is translated virgin. That's just been a Christianized thing because literally the word means a maiden, as, as it does. And therefore, you, you know, this idea of a virgin birth, really it's just a mistranslating of things. So I want us to talk about this and, and slow down and understand um, the difference between the Hebrew and then what Matthew does. So although some do claim that this word, which is translated virgin, uh, refers generally to a young woman, it, it actually refers specifically to a maiden. And technically a maiden is a young woman who is unmarried and sexually pure or sexually chaste. Thus, this word has virginity as one of its characteristics. So obviously there can be a woman who is a maiden, who's uh, young and unmarried and, uh, and sexually pure, and, and she can conceive. Well, and obviously that would mean she had intercourse and so on. So there is that, of course. But follow this. Some 500 years later, about in the 200s before Christ, there's this group of scholars and, and they take the Hebrew of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, they translate it into the Greek. They, they want uh, for Greek readers to have a translation of the Hebrew. It's called the Septuagint or the LXX. Okay, And when they come to um, this passage in Isaiah and they are trying to find what's a good Greek word to translate. They, they know their Hebrew. They know what Alma means. They obviously know the Greek language. And so when they come uh, to this word, um, now look at Matthew one twenty two, Okay. And you notice the quote, behold the virgin. And so in Greek, it's this word Parthenos. And that's the same word they used. So, so they, they haven't written Matthew, right? This is 200 before Jesus. As they're writing and translating, when they come to Isaiah 7, they, they understand what Isaiah meant. They understand that there's, this, there's something more to it just being you know, a, a young woman. Um, so they pick a specific Greek word, parthenos, which is a specific term for virgin. If they had wanted to just use a word that meant young lady, they could have used a different word in Greek to mean young lady. But they, they understood that, that Isaiah 
had something else in mind. In fact, he had um, an Alma in mind, uh, someone who was uh, a virgin. And so when they translate, they, they pick a word in Greek, Parthenos, that means virgin. So now Matthew, 200 years after all that, when he is, is writing about the events of the Lord Jesus and as he's going back and describing now how the birth of Jesus took place, he goes to all these lengths to say uh, they were betrothed, but they weren't together. They had not come together before they knew each other. And then he says, this fulfills Isaiah. And he takes right from the Septuagint this verse that uses a word that means virgin. This, this word means virgin. So don't, don't let people um, trap you, cause you to struggle, and to say that, well, the virgin birth, it's not really all that important because really, you know, the word can mean different things. And they, you know, this word that's translated virgin in the Hebrew, it just means maiden. When we get to Matthew, Matthew knew what Isaiah meant. And the Septuagint translation knew what Isaiah meant. And, and they, they, this word now that we have, it means virgin. Um, it's not simply one of those doctrines, the virgin birth, the virginal conception, that we could say, well, maybe this is just something that was thrown in. Um, no, this is something that God's people have been confessing since the beginning. I just was scrolling this morning. Uh, I didn't add it into my notes, but from like 125 AD, uh, we've got an early confession uh, of, so second century, we've got an early confession um, not, not a formal like Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, but an early confession statement of what Christians believe. And, and right in there is that Jesus was born of a Hebrew virgin. And, and so um, going all the way back, this is what Christians have confessed. Jesus was born of a virgin. This is a fulfillment of prophecy, a sign of who he is. Some want to talk about well, that may be the Jesus of faith, but we got to look at the Jesus of history and, and this kind of pairing of there's a difference. No, we just need to look at our Bibles. We need to understand our Bibles. Matthew knew what he was writing. The Septuagint translators knew what they were translating. And again, Matthew goes to lengths to explain that they didn't know each other. They were betrothed, but they stayed uh, apart physically and so on. One commentator, he gets at something we need to hear too, beyond you know, the technicality of the word, the, the purpose of the virgin birth. And he writes this, part of the purpose of the virgin birth of Jesus is to show us that salvation does not come from man, from humanity. Salvation comes from God, right? If it takes uh, a woman and a man to make a baby, and it does, um, this is from God because this baby only had, in terms of human parts, part of mom, but God does the supernatural work. Salvation is wholly the work of a supernatural God, not the work of natural men and women. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, and we're going to see that here in a second with the second part of this. Nothing we can do to save ourselves from our sins. And this is evident even in the way in which Jesus entered the world. He, he, this baby born in Bethlehem was and is the center of all history. And he came um, 
through a miraculous, supernatural, virginal conception. And it's important. It matters. And it's what the scriptures teach. Miraculous, yes. Everyday kind of thing, no. But something God did. And again, there's theological ramifications too that that Jesus didn't have um, a father's DNA in him, earthly human father, and that's another time, maybe when we get into Romans one day. In Jesus, God comes to be with us, and that is the and the first sign from Matthew of that uh, is the miraculous nature of his birth, the virgin birth, the virginal conception. Now briefly, uh, and I wanted to spend most of the time on that first point. Now let's look briefly at a second sign, right? Matthew, I said, gives us two. First, again, is the miraculous birth, the virginal conception. But then number two, the second sign Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus fulfills the birth of a son. So let's just... Uh, Look at this again briefly. Let me read verses 1 through 25. I'm sorry, 21 through 25. So this is right in the middle of the angel speaking to Joseph. Verse 21. Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then again, Matthew's sermon picks up at 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then verse 23, quoting Isaiah 7, 14, both points. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's the other key to that prophecy. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The second half of the prophecy about Emmanuel has to do with the bearing of a son. But it's not just um, a reference to any male child, but again, the promised one. I've already alluded to it. This is the promised one that Isaiah would get to in Isaiah 9. But, but here, even the angel gets to the point that this isn't just a boy, son, boy, child. No, verse 21, this, this son, he's to be called, he's to be given a name, Jesus, and that name is to be given because he will save his people from their sins. Sometimes you hear people say the point of Christmas or the meaning of Christmas is that Jesus came to die. Yes, that's partly true. It's right here. This son would get this name because that name implies what he came for. He will save his people from their sin. This name Jesus is is a Greek word. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew, Yeshua, and that translates Yahweh saves. Yeshua means God saves. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And notice that again, Matthew spells that out. God's people then needed to hear that. They wanted to be saved from their enemies, to be delivered from oppression, but, but Jesus came to save from an even greater oppression, to save not only God's people then, but us now from sin and the consequences of sin, which is death. We have in this name this crucial aspect of this promised son. But we also note in there that, that there's the signaling, and it's not explicit, but it's implicit, that, that Joseph adopts Jesus as his son. 
that's part of what the angel's telling him. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary and imply it is to, to see that through. And then this son, you're to be his dad, his human dad to adopt him. Uh, and if we were to go back in the beginning of Matthew, we see that Matthew highlights the genealogy of Joseph and shows that Joseph in his genealogy traces his line to King David. And it was to King David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, that there was this promise that David's throne would be established forever. There was one coming. And so it comes through Joseph, not because his DNA is in Jesus, but because Joseph adopts him. And so it's just a glorious, glorious uh, picture. Church, in Jesus, God comes to be with us. And, and this is a promise that can change your life. In Jesus, God comes to be with us. My, my professor, who I mentioned earlier, he writes this, the significance cannot be overstated. God has come to be with his people, to fulfill the deepest meaning of the covenant. In Jesus, God is now with his people personally as their savior. Again, not just a God who's for his people, who does some things, who controls the world and his sovereignty. He's come to be with. Jesus lived a life and understands rejection as he was rejected by his friends, understands misunderstanding as his family thought he was crazy for a long time uh, and loneliness and temptation. He, God came to be with us through the sending of the son. And this theme, my professor goes on, forms the heart of what we speak of, of a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's the, the hallmark of what it means to be a follower of him. We follow one even now who has ascended back to heaven, we follow one who came and who lived and we want to be like him. We want to do life the way he did. We want to obey him. We want to be transformed to look like him. And he, he came to be, to be with us. Far too many people, ah, that won't change my life. It can, it truly can. Uh, I had a friend this week He, he sent me um, some implications that he'd wrestled through with, with this word with. In Jesus, God comes to be with us. Let, let, me, let me end with these because here's the thing. Um, you know, I mentioned my friend who believes the, the go get baguette sandwich would change my life. Well, I have things too that I hype, okay? Um, I was thinking, you know, I use a computer software called Logos. I think it'll change your life if you study the Bible with Logos. I really do. You may not experience that. Um, I'm kind of into the CopperFit products that I see on TV, and I've purchased some of those. There's something about that copper infusion that makes a difference. I do think so. Um, to me, Gott's Roadside Burgers are the best burgers in Northern California, and that burger will change you. Um, but, right... But those may just be my things. But, but I am convinced that, that this truth, that God delivered, that God coming to be with us in Jesus, it, it'll change our life. And so I love these uh, implications from my friend. And so I give these to us. 
with, in Jesus, God coming to be with us, with, it changes the story. Because it means that through God, that though, sorry, though God made everything good, and though we have turned in rebellion, um, God didn't give up on creation, and God didn't give up on us. Right? It changes the story. He came in Jesus to redeem all creation so that everything might be made new. And that's why we say, come back, Jesus. So, so with changes the story. Number two, with changes the relationship. Because Jesus brings us face to face with the reality that God wants a relationship with us and that God didn't abandon us to loneliness, yet it's in the midst of our rebellion that he came to take our sin so that we could have a relationship with him. The truth of God with us is that God can be with you in Jesus. Number three, with changes our present reality because it means that in Jesus, we aren't ever alone. It's interesting. Matthew begins by saying that this prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, right? That's right at the beginning of his account of the life of Jesus. Well, Matthew ends with Jesus saying, Matthew chapter 20, Jesus giving that famous, what we call the Great Commission, go and make disciples, help people begin and grow in following me. And I'm, I want you to do it by baptizing and teaching. And then Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always. So this idea of God with us, right? It's a present reality. He is with us always. He came and he's with us from our most painful moments. He's with us. If you're struggling right now, he's with you. He is with you. And then number four, finally, with changes our eternity because it means that God has a purpose and a plan that in Jesus, he will do what he says he promised. He's been given this name, Yeshua, God saves, to rid the world of sin and one day to establish a new heaven and a new earth. And it's in Jesus that we can now experience a taste of that coming kingdom. John, at the end of Revelation, which is at the end of our Bible, he writes this, John 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to lead us in prayer and then we're going to celebrate that truth now in Jesus. God comes to be with us and all that he is and all that he's done, even as we long for him to come again, that wondrous mystery together. So Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for the sign of the virgin birth. Thank you for the sign of the son who wasn't just a boy, but no, the promised one who would be wonderful counselor, mighty God. And I pray that this claim, this promise that was fulfilled would change us again and again and again. So again, wherever we are at, Father, in this room today, you know what we're dealing with, struggling with, thinking about. May this truth that God has come to be with us in Jesus change us. 
May this wondrous mystery change us. I pray in Jesus' name.